Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is April the 14th, 2015, and this is episode 1556. This is an episode I promised you last week. This is uh, Toby Hemingway will be on with us today, author of Gaia's Garden, which is the best selling permaculture book in the world for like the past eight years uh, with no embellishment or exaggeration. It, it really is. And Toby's an awesome guy. And uh, we're going to talk today about permaculture in a different light. Well, we, what, what Toby has called and has said that others have already used the phrase, so it's not his coin, uh, term he coined, but what he is now calling liberation permaculture. The concept that we can actually develop value in our communities, the value in our properties, etc., that can be exclusively ours because they cannot be quantified. And therefore, since they cannot be quantified, it's difficult for the state to tax them. And you might understand why, after this uh, interview, the state enjoys centralizing everything. Because if you centralize it, you can quantify it. If you can quantify it, you can distribute it. If you can distribute it, you can tax it and redistribute it. And, and that's the society that we live in today. And, and the problem really with that, regardless of your politics, is, is I believe, as I examine the biggest problems we face, whether it's, 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 it's the inability to keep up with the demand for food, whether it's things like the California drought, whether it's the real climate change that we're, we're causing through mostly agricultural practices, not through the, the, ex, you know, the exhalation of CO2, but the agricultural practices that are desertifying our, our lands, uh, that are cutting forests, etc. That when we examine all of that, the actual solutions all involved a decentralized model. So regardless of what your political leanings are, if you want to solve the problems, we need to de decentralize things. And if you want liberty, we need to decentralize things. It's an interesting way to look at things and to talk more about it in just a minute. I'll bring Toby on. Before that, let's take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you. Sponsor of the day number one today is HarvestEating.com. HarvestEating is, is my source to learn more about cooking seasonally and locally. To get great advice from a great chef in, in the form of Keith Snow. To get my favorite seasonings, whether it's my new favorite curry that I use on my chicken or my good old-fashioned uh, long-term uh, addiction of the Montana steak seasoning and northern Italian. I've been using uh, Chef Keith's uh, seasonings now uh, going back about three years, and I use them every week. You give his products a shot, you'll see why, and you can learn an awful lot more about how to cook and how to make cooking a life skill and a prepper skill at HarvestEating.com. And remember, check out his podcast. If you like mine, I think you'll like his as well. Next up today, Backwoods Home Magazine, the easiest sponsor I've ever had to, to sponsor. The easiest company I've ever endorsed in any capacity. You see, I subscribed to Backwoods Home in 1994. It's 2015, and yesterday, the most recent edition of Backwoods Home Magazine ended up in my mailbox. I've been a subscriber for 21 years. When you have a business relationship as a customer with a company for 21 years, and they say, hey, would you be willing to endorse us? Yeah, that was an easy one to do. Check them out. I love the fact that I can now work with people like John Silvera, Dave Duffy, Jackie Clay, who has an awesome article on building your own chicken plucker in the recent episode, for instance. Uh, these, these folks are great. Great, good 
people that believe in liberty and developing personal skills and developing your homestead in a way where your homestead is actually a homestead that supports you rather than a house that sucks your income and becomes your largest liability. Check them out today at Backwoods Home. Com. Next up today, let's take a look at the plan of the week. It is Tuesday, so Bob Wells has a plan of the week for us. Today's is the Calwert Muscadine. The Calwert Muscadine is adaptable from zone 6 to 9. That's like Pennsylvania to South Texas, guys. It's a pretty big area. The Calwert Muscadine grape is a self-fertile variety that produces a juicy and delicious Muscadine grape. It's perfect for eating when fresh off the vine. Calwert Muscadines produce grapes with colors ranging from deep purple to nearly black. Calwert Muscadines are grown in large commercial vineyards. And you need a, a, a self-fertile pollinator. Uh, and that's a, really a great thing about the Coward is it is a self-fertile variety. And uh, it ripens early, highly productive. And, and just remember, you're, if you have any female muscadines on your property, you always require cross-pollination to bear fruit. So you'll want to plant a self-fertile pollinator variety like Coward nearby to uh, pollinate female muscadines you plant. The Cowart muscadine is a native species, or muscadines in general are native species to the southeastern United States, so they are more immune to many of the diseases and the climatic factors of North America uh, than their European counterparts, so they're a great way to have a reliable production that doesn't require a lot of inputs. You can find this plant more at BombWellsNursery.com. Bob Wells specializes in anything edible, fruit trees, berry plants, nut trees, as well as hard-to-find specialty trees. Next up, let's take a look at the history segment, the year 1556, because that's the episode. We have the worst earthquake in recorded history. The worst, I almost said there, it's like I had a little Mike Tyson moment. The worst earthquake in recorded history. The troubles of Ireland are just beginning. In several words, borough, ghetto, and divorce. Uh, they're all interesting, but I'm going to read the worst earthquake in recorded history. Since as preppers, it's one of the things we do worry about is things like natural disasters. Yadongs are dwellings made of packed earth or caves dug out in the side of a hill. They are the primary shelters used in Shanxi province, almost smack in the middle of China. It is evening and most people are at home asleep. Suddenly an 8.0 earthquake strikes. Mountains move. Rivers change their course. A 500-mile-wide area of destruction wipes out 830,000 people as their homes collapse around them, burying them in earth. In some areas, 60% of the population is wiped out in the span of a couple of minutes. It is the worst earthquake in recorded history. My take by Alex Shrug, who puts these together for us at TSPWiki.com. I used to be a soils technician, babysitting men old enough to be my father while they compacted soil in earthquake-prone Southern California. It had to be done right so that an earthquake would be survivable. Soil conditions vary from place to place. In Austin, Texas, a 5.0 earthquake would be a serious problem. In Los Angeles, a 6.0 would be a heck of a ride, but survivable. I laughed this morning as I watched the New York News reporter speak in wide-eyed horror of a 3.5 earthquake in Southern California. A 3.5 won't even wake the baby, but dutifully, the fire department moved their engines into the parking lot just in case the garage collapsed. An 8.0 would be the big one. If you're worried about how your earthship will hold up in your area, seek the advice of a local soils engineer. Soils engineering is a black art. You can't learn it from books, and every location is different. 
amusing anecdote. In Southern California, whenever there's an earthquake greater than 5.0, the local news reporters will grab their cameras and rush to the airport and invariably will find a few people in their bathrobe and slippers holding a Visa card screaming, get me the heck out of this madhouse. It can be quite frightening if one is not used to a world suddenly becoming terra unfirma without any warning whatsoever. Uh, in defense of the people that move their uh, their fire trucks out of the garage, um, sometimes a 3.0 or a 3.5 is followed by a 5.0, just saying. So sometimes like when there's a little earthquake and you're in an earthquake zone, it makes sense to take precautions because that might have been your warning, but usually not. Usually it's the other way around. You get a big one and then aftershocks of smaller ones. Anyway, you know, here's my take on this. It, to me, it's the lo loss of life at this time in history, which may have been greater than the estimates because, well, it's hard to quantify things like that back then. But 830,000 people, let's just round it down to 800,000. If you fill Cowboys Stadium to the brim with standing room only people, not as many people as you can possibly fit in there, but what the stadium is designed to hold, including the vendors, it's about 100,000 people. Uh, imagine the horror if somehow a stadium that size wall full to capacity collapsed onto itself, killing everybody in it. Or if there was a terrorist act that did that. It would be an unimaginable horror in, in numbers for today. So imagine eight of those. Now imagine them spread off across the country. 800,000 souls gone. This is the reality humanity dealt with for a large part of our existence here on the planet. Even when you weren't dying from things like the Black Death, the Earth could just change the rules for a moment and wipe us out. It was a horrible thing, but at the same time, it was possible that maybe we were a little bit wiser in the way that we took care of our planet back then because we had a reverence and a respect for it. And we had a reverence and respect due to ignorance, but at least we had a reverence of respect. Today, I think maybe we should develop a reverence and respect out of knowledge that the earth still can smack us down, even if we are able to do things with, say, soil science to mitigate that. That there's always the potential for an earthquake or a hurricane or God knows what else to give humanity the big old smackdown. And perhaps it would make sense if we weren't doing things to smack ourselves down, like depleting our natural resources, destroying our arable land, and creating a system where government controls people and takes from the, the producers and gives to the non-producers consistently enough to cause a system to create a place where takers outnumber producers. Because that results in a parasitic mentality of society, which will eventually rate in greater, greater parasitism upon our planet. California drought's an example right now, folks. It's just a convenient one to keep going back to because it's in the news. But if you think about it, the California drought is a direct result of the parasitism of the resources of other people by the people of California, justified with, well, we produce a lot of food. Yes, but how? And why can't that food be produced elsewhere? And why can't you do more with, it with what you have? You see, as soon as we start creating a model based on redistribution, you create a society that believes in redistribution, and feels that it's only right for those that have more to have what they have taken from them. Not to share it, but to have it taken from them. And you end up with a society that is parasitic. And I think there was probably less parasitic societies at a time when people realized that they weren't in control of everything. 
Today we have the opportunity to do so much more with reverence and respect and knowledge combined. But yet we continue to fail over and over again to do just that. With that in mind, I want to bring on our special guest today, Mr. Toby Hemingway. We're going to talk about a lot of things, including how man can move from less of an agricultural society to more of a horticultural society. We're going to talk about permaculture as a whole. We're going to talk about the liberating aspects of permaculture, both anarchistic and socialist tendencies within permaculture that actually get along with each other, though that might seem impossible. And a lot of other really interesting things. And with that, I want to say, hey, Toby, man, welcome to the Survival Podcast. All right. Thanks, Jack. It's great to be here. Hey, I have you on to talk about something today called Liberation Permaculture. I kind of primed the pump for that with a show last week I did called The, the Real Long Slow Socioeconomic Emergency playing off the long, slow emergency oil thing and, and talking about a much bigger problem for mankind than just oil and how I feel that some of the things that you're talking about with liberation permaculture might help uh, humanity adapt to some of these many problems. But before we get into that, what I'd actually like you to do, just because you've never been on the show before, is tell people a little bit about yourself. Uh, what did you do professionally before you got into permaculture and what led you to permaculture? Yeah, okay. Um, right. Well, I've been practicing permaculture for about 20 years uh, and I actually came to it because I was really dissatisfied with my previous life, uh, previous career. Uh, I was always interested in science and nature as a kid, so I got into genetics when I got out of school. And genetics got really interesting what, with the genetic engineering revolution and all of that. So I did medical genetics um, for a while, looking at developing new cancer drugs and things like that. And I spent 15, 20 years or so in that field and gradually really became uncomfortable with the way that biotech was going, just especially agricultural biotech, but even medical biotech. We were basically developing things that could rescue people from bad chemotherapy and radiation treatments and keep them alive, um, well, not really much longer, but just to let doctors do hairier experiments on them, basically. And so I just got really bothered with the whole direction that all that was going. And my wife and I, in uh, 1990, had just purchased a five-acre property well outside of Seattle, and I was playing hooky from work one day in the Seattle Public Library and looking up books on homesteading and back to the land and found this great big black book that had just come out called Permaculture, a Designer's Manual. And I looked through it and saw all this stuff on ecology and trees and energy and climate and buildings and shelter and even some stuff on economics. And I realized that these were all the things I'd ever been interested in in my life, and I'd never seen how they all tied together. And permaculture put them all together for me. So basically, we quit our jobs, never looked back, and uh, and here I am today as you know, practicing permaculture and, and writing about it and having a much better life, that's for sure. So that's that's wow. it in a nutshell. I learned something there. I did not know that was your professional background. So before we get into the, the main topic, one of the things you're really known for is, is your book, Gaia's Garden. And unlike the book that's coming out in the summer you can't get yet, people can get that. So can you tell people a little bit about Gaia's Garden, what it's all about. I think it's one of the most fundamentally useful books, especially for people new to the concept of permaculture. Yeah, Gaia's Garden, well, I wrote the first edition back, um, I was writing it in like 99 and 2000, and I did it because 
there were a few permaculture books out at that point, but they're all pretty technical and really not a lot of fun to read. You really had to kind of, you had to be a maniac to get through the designer's manual, which is you know, huge and amazing and brilliant, but it's hard work. So what I really wanted was, uh, some sort of a, a book that, you know, that, that was, was going to be user friendly for people. And I had done a lot of explaining of technical subjects to kind of a lay audience as part of my biotech job. So I took this book on and uh, never expected it to be successful. Just thought, you know, here'd, here'd be one of, you know, another book out there that maybe a few people would buy. But Gaia's Garden is really taking permaculture down to the, to the home scale uh, so that people who live in city lots and suburban yards and you know, small properties, um, rather than farmers, just regular folks, uh, can can uh, practice permaculture in their own yards. So that was what I set out to do, and it went into a second edition in 2009. It actually got to be a successful book, which kind of blew me away. I wasn't expecting that. Um, but it's really bringing permaculture to the average kind of homeowner or renter or person with a normal size yard rather than the big farm scale stuff. And of course, people can get that. You've got a new book coming up. We'll talk a little bit toward the end of today's show about, but people can pre-register for that. That, but that's going to be really more of a kind of taking like a next level of like urban permaculture or, or what have you. Yeah, exactly. That's kind of moving permaculture up to the next level on a, on a few different fronts. I'd, I'd like to think. Very cool. Well, again, that book can be pre-ordered. We'll tell you how to do that toward the end of today's show. But let's get into the kind of meat and potatoes of what we're going to talk about today. So not long ago, I was listening to Diego Footer's podcast, Permaculture Voices, and I, I heard Toby Hemingway and Liberation Permaculture, and I thought, God, I hope this is going where I think it is, and then it did. So <laughs> with that in mind, can you tell the audience what you mean by the concept of liberation permaculture? Yeah, yeah. Well, first I want to point out that, that I'm not the first one to use the term liberation permaculture that other people – I mean, the word liberation gets stuck in front of all sorts of words. Sure. So there have been a lot of people or a few other people who've used that word, that that phrase. And you know, so I just I want to not claim any exclusive use or originality. But it's just it's the right word for what I was doing because I think – I mean, Mollison, the Bill Mollison, the founder of Permaculture, said many years ago that gardening is actually a revolutionary act. And, and it is because it, you know, you, you can control your own nutrition. You can control your own food supply. Uh, you can avoid the whole, you know, industrial ag complex, all of these things. And it teaches you to be more self-reliant. Uh, and, and to be engaged with, with nature. So it really is a revolutionary act. But it turns out that permaculture itself uh, teaches us a lot about, I guess, what you'd call things like personal sovereignty and freeing ourselves from a lot of the uh, the ideas that have kind of colonized our minds over the over the millennia of, of you know, since the dawn of agriculture, I guess, since we since human beings became domesticated is, is really um, what I was thinking about was we we're we're, um, we're a very domesticated animal. And it's interesting I, you say that. I remember my father used to say that that was the goal of those in power to to fully domesticate the human species. Oh, right, make us docile, make us obedient, just like we do with cattle, or the, you know, get rid of the unruly ones. You call the herd to you know to make to to create sheep, essentially. Sure. Uh, and so that's that's part of what permaculture really helped me realize was that 
you know there's there's a lot to be said for wildness and we've we've lost a lot in becoming domesticated so i've been kind of on this path for a number of years of of exploring how permaculture can help us um, regain some of that wildness but still preserve a lot of the things that we like about our culture i mean I, there's a lot of, about this culture that i really don't like but there there are a few things that that i do like <laughs> um and so what what I've been doing with permaculture is is looking at it and kind of at human history and anthropology and some pretty big topics like that and really seeing how these things can become tools for for liberating our minds and and the planet from you know, from the the way that we've been colonized by concepts like the state uh, and and the way that we've been domesticated. So that's where I was going with this. And what do you mean by decolonizing our minds? I love that phrase, and it, yeah. I, I, I've heard what you've said about that, so I know, but I think the audience would love to hear what you mean by decolonizing our minds and moving from like this agricultural society where everything is about what can we take from a field to reclaiming our minds before we even try to move to the next level. Yeah, one of the big shifts that happened when we became an agricultural society for the most part, when most human beings became agricultural, was that we went from this understanding that nature would provide for us, that we we belonged here on Earth, that we were just one of the other animals who could make their living on this planet just the way all other animals could. And we went from that understanding of nature providing for us to nature was where the bad stuff came from. Because if you're a farmer, nature's where the deer come that eat your crops, they're where the bugs come, they're where the diseases come from. You want to fence your fields off from all that bad stuff out there. And then you want to work hard to grow your own food. And what what came along with that was this power hierarchy as well, is that that this really allowed the control of populations because Land was often owned by by an elite. You know, you had these fields that were often owned by the nobility, and you paid rent to them by tilling a certain amount of grain and giving a certain percentage of your grain um, to these elites. And this this is gradually what happened with domestication: was that we lost our understanding that we could provide for ourselves by being a part of nature, and we we gained this idea that someone else was going to take care of us and we had to work really hard uh, at our own stuff to make sure that we could be taken care of. So it, it, agriculture was really the beginning of hierarchy. Uh, and um, you know, there, there's a, one of the things that really blew me away was understanding the origin of the word Lord, um, you know, <laughs> the Lord of the manor, the Lord of the, of, of the place, uh, is from an old English word or two old English words, hlaf ward. And hlaf is loaf and ward is keeper of or ward. So the Lord literally means the keeper of the loaves. The Lord is the person who controls the grain. The food. And that, that just tells you right there what's going on. So. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, and it's interesting, when you were talking there about, like, how nature's where bad stuff comes from, it's all a matter of perspective. I remember when I first started doing a show, I was about two years into it, and a guy posted on the blog, and he said, you know, I planted a garden last year, and there were so many dadgone deer around, I had to shoot eight deer to keep them out of my garden, and I only got half of what I planted, and I said, your garden grows deer. <laughs> right? Exactly. I'm like, you got a deer garden. I, I I think I'd shoot 16 deer and let them have all the vegetables. I 
I, I don't see the problem, and I think there is a dichotomy like that. You talked about it being like the difference between, you know, the, the, the plains-based civilization city people versus the hill people in, uh, in California at your presentation. Right, yeah. The, um, and this goes to a, a Yale professor that I've learned a lot from named James C. Scott, who wrote a really great book called Seeing Like a State, uh, and another one called The Art of Not Being Governed. And he talks about how the major civilizations have all been valley-based because valleys are flat, you can put out roads, you can easily um, reach the population in a valley area, and you can plant it with grain. And grain is really easy to measure. You can look at a field of grain and know roughly exactly what or roughly what the yield is going to be from that field. So you can figure out just how much to tax everybody and you can control a large area. The urban centers were able to control the valleys. But out in the hills, it was harder to get to. And hill people tend not to grow grain. They grow things more like tubers or fruits or greens and things like that. And it's really hard to measure those things. So the hill people became um, what Scott calls illegible to the state. <laughs> the state had a really hard time getting control of hill people. And that was pr- true pretty much all over the world until 1945 when you know, people got tanks and radio and you know, when the state had all these tools to move up into the hills, the interstate highway system, all of this. But hill people even still are a little wilder. Uh, you know, less domesticated and less easy for the state to control. So my my big realization was that permaculture talks about guilds and we talk about growing a wide variety of crops. We're not really a grain-based culture in permaculture. And permaculture itself is kind of illegible. It's As far as James Scott's definition is, is concerned, it's hard to tell what the yield of a permaculture garden is because there's so many different yields and many of them are just not measurable at all like insect habitat and you know butterflies and and bird habitat and cleaning water and generating healthy soil those things are not taxable they're not legible and so to me this is part of permaculture's ability to liberate us from from what i call the meme of the state that we we get a great deal of freedom by doing activities that are legal but illegible, and that's that's what we can do with permaculture. Now, you don't necessarily mean that we should all go back to living like, you know, Stone Age hunter-gatherers, though I think there's a lot to be learned from that lifestyle. You're not anti-technology. You're not anti, let's say, real modernism as far as being able to improve the quality of our life, but it does sound like you're pretty much anti, anti, uh, anti-state. Yeah, I think that's that's where the problem is. I think one of the things that permaculture helps us do is understand about functions. Understand, you know, we 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 even permaculture we talk talk about stacking functions, making things do more than one thing, or finding that you know we plant a, a tree and it gives us shade plus habitat plus fruit plus organic matter, all these things like that. And so we look a lot at function in permaculture. And one of the things that I'm realizing is that if we can look at the important functions of the state, the, the really valuable things that the, that we want from the state, we can provide those functions ourselves or in other ways without having these giant state organizations. We can have local currencies. We can have, you know, in, instead of a federal militia, a federal army, we can have local defense systems, things like that, so that we can bring the scale down to where 
the local community has control over the things that affect it rather than somebody off in some national capital somewhere being beholden to lobbyists and, you know, blah, blah, that whole thing. Sure. Um, permaculture, I think, offers us tools to have the functions that we need without having the giant institutions that are really there just to preserve their own existence. Yeah, there's a, something called the Iron Law of Bureaucracy that states in any organization uh, that the individuals that make up that organization will largely spit into two camps. One will be the group of individuals who, who, who really take to heart the mission and they go out and see to the mission. And the other half will be the people that are, are have the allegiance to the organization themselves. And they will always be the ones that rise up in the bureaucracy of that organization, and they'll always be detached from the people in the field. And the disconnect will eventually get to the point where the people that are actually trying to accomplish the mission quit. And the only people left are the bureaucrats that simply want to preserve the entity itself. Right. And boy, and look I, at government. Jeez, there you go. Yeah. <laughs> it's the classic example. I absolutely believe that's true. I've seen it happen in institutions that I've been involved with as as they grow. It, it becomes all about the survival of the institution rather than performing the function that the institution was actually designed to do. And so permaculture, I think, helps us spot where that is occurring and helps us design our way out of it um, and, and really liberate ourselves from institutions that are no longer serving their purpose and and replace them with something that that works so that's that's my my hope and that's you know so i'm i'm spending a lot of time thinking about those sorts of things and really helping to, to try to make that happen i think there's a lot to it and you can do it from some basic things like so what are your thoughts on this like let's say i didn't live in an unincorporated area like i do so right now if i want to do a remodel of my house i i don't have to ask anybody but in most places i have to phone up the local john law form whatever form of it is whether it's the council the uh, uh, the city planning commission or whatever and say, I'm going to do a remodel. And then they send out an inspector. He gives me a permit. And that permit costs a few hundred bucks maybe. Tells me what I can and can't do. That's a problem into itself, but I'll let that go. But the big reason they do that is this quantifiability that you're talking about, like with grain. So they come out there and they inspect the job before and after. Now they know I've put $25,000 into my kitchen. So now the next time the assessment on the value of my home comes around, that's taken into an account, and then they can raise my property taxes. Right, they exactly. Win, I lose. I pay three times because most people borrowed the money, then they pay the debt, they pay the interest, <laughs> and then they pay the tax, right? So, right. But if I go out and I plant $5,000 worth of trees on my property, in 10 years, there's no doubt those trees have probably increased the value of the property fifty, sixty, seventy thousand $70,000. But there's no way they can really quantify that. They can't really jack up my taxes. Though I did hear about a place in Maine that had a view tax or something like that, and they assessed it on a blind guy, by the way. Uh, <laughs> it was just wow. preposterous. But in, but in reality, places that model works. You, they can't really increase anything. In fact, I could probably then turn it around and say, well, this is all woodlands now. This I'm growing timber for 100 years that I'll never harvest, but it's still ag and – I, I get an ag exemption, now I pay less taxes. Right. So right. there's like there's ways that it can be very simple, I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think, and that's that's this idea of being legal but illegible, just doing things like that. Or, you know, instead of buying fancy new stuff, you know, from, from some place and, and remodeling your house with that, um, put in a natural plaster on the walls or a, um, you know, a cob, a rocket mass heater made of cob. And when an inspector comes to look at that, 
you know, they, it, it's like, well, you probably decreased the value of your house because you got all this mud inside or something <laughs> like that. So, you know, doing doing things that are going to be off the radar screen like like that, that are that are still perfectly legal. Yeah, they're, they're just like, kind of scratching their heads. Even if they wanted to say, you know, the heater that most of the inspectors wouldn't even recognize it as a mass as a mass for a heater. That's just a cob couch. We sit on that. Right. Exactly. Right. They yeah. they can't comprehend what they're actually looking at. I think in a, in a lot of situations, and there's always going to be at least, and I think in our lifetimes anyway, what I call the interactive edges of society. In other words, there's this place we want to be, and there's this, we'd rather be left alone. But there's going to be certain places where we have to interact with society. And instead of always, you know, the headlong assault, I'll do it, and you can't stop me. We need to be a little more sophisticated about how we do it. Yeah, exactly. And this is this is where um, I, I used to be on the board of a wonderful organization in Portland, Oregon called City Repair, and they are very much push the edge of what is permittable when they put up, you know, public structures, um, little cobs, cob buildings, and and straw bale things. And they go into the building department and have a conversation with some of the inspectors and, and really try and work things out. You know, we want to do this. How can you help do this rather than have an adversarial relationship of, you know, we're going to do it and we don't care. But but helping to to expand the code a little bit so that some of these things are allowable. I know, you know, that is that edge that we kind of rather not work, but... Um, there are ways to to expand what is allowable without without going into full common mode, but and also without getting it just sucked into the system. You know, okay, now we know we can tax cob at X dollars yeah. per pound of earth or something like that. Yeah, I mean, I I did a project in Montana as part of a group for uh, public food forest up there. Uh, the Dave Jackie taught the, uh, the the course that was wrapped around that and. There were like nine stakeholders from the city and various groups that had to be appeased, and everybody wanted their own thing. And finally, when it was all over, somebody said, would you ever do this again? I said, the only way I would ever do a public food forest was like this. I would raise, I would raise money privately. I would buy a piece of land. I would plant the food forest. And before the city could tear it out, I would announce a press conference and donate it to the city and hand the, the paperwork to the mayor in front of the press. And they go... Well I, well, I shook his hand. You're not tearing this one out, are you? <laughs> right? Because now they're a jerk if they tear it out because it's been privately donated to the city. And I could get it done in two days. Right. Where this yeah, thing's that's... going on two years now, they still haven't planted it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's that's exactly it. And this is you know, this is that, that interface where, where individuals uh, and small groups can really be much more nimble. Um, and then, right, be, because we can distribute this information and make everybody aware of what we've done, then it becomes public and it and it becomes much more protected. So that's a brilliant strategy. I mean, have you yeah. heard of Ron Finley? Oh, sure, right. I've met Ron. Yeah, yeah he's, he he's didn't, doing great stuff. He didn't ask permission. He just did it and did it and did it. But then he was also working the other side. He was going to the city council meetings. And, and funny enough, as he started to feed his community, more and more people started to come along for the ride. And eventually it's like, we're going to look really stupid if we keep doing this, and we need to get out of the way. And I think that's another weapon we can turn against government is, is to do something that's actually pretty easy with government if you're smart about it. Make them look stupid. And, and the way I put that is, see, I don't care what you think about me. I really don't. And I, I don't think you really care what people think about you either as long as they're accurate in why they feel that way. But a politician cares very much what people think about him. 
because his job's contingent upon it. So that's an advantage I think these small groups and, and, and individual renegades have is that we're, I'm not trying to win your opinion. I'm not trying to win your favor. All I'm trying to do is accomplish the goal that I have. And if I can make it where the person that has the power to get in the way of that goal looks dumb or bad or poorly for getting a, they would prefer not to look that way. So that can actually be turned against them. Right, exactly. That that if we're doing things that are that are of value, that are in service, that are right for the community, when when we, you know, those of us who are right on the ground, we can see the needs that need to be taken care of, and in in small groups, take care of those things, and then say, okay, look what we've done. You know, isn't this great? Uh, you probably don't want to tear this out, do you? And, <laughs> and group, groups like City Repair have done that all over the place, where they create something lovely and beautiful and really desired by the community, and then you know the mayor comes by or something, or the city council comes by, or the Department of Transportation comes by and says, this, this isn't following the rules, but they can't get rid of it because the community loves it, and yeah. it would make them look really terrible. Yeah. Yeah, and I think the smaller the governmental body, the more oppressive they can be, but the easier they are to, to, to get in the way of. Right. So what I mean is like the most oppressive organization in the world to me isn't a city. It's an HOA. You want <laughs> yep. a group of people that just get in the way of everything sustainable, go find an HOA full of blue hairs and they'll do it, right? Um, but, and that's, that one's a little tougher because there's a, like to me, that's a problem in of itself because anybody that voluntarily chooses to live in an HOA is a person that goes, you know what? Just don't have enough government. City, state, local, county, federal, not enough, need more. So that's that's an uphill battle. But like a city or um, uh, like a, a township that has these weird ordinances, it only takes a few people to throw everybody out of their job that are just ticked off enough to swing the other way in the next election. And these people do not want to lose their job because many of them, I hate to put it this way, but I don't think they'd have much else to do if they weren't in an elected office. <laughs> Right, right, exactly. And one thing that's really working in our favor these days is the fact that we are looking at higher energy costs. And, you know, here here in the western U.S., we're, we're in a big drought. Uh, so things like going to your HOA and saying, look, our lawn consumes so much water and it's really irresponsible for us to be doing this. And if we put in trees and, and you know, low you know, native plants or whatever it is, you know, present a plan that shows a real benefit to the community and shows how it solves all these issues that's way better than just sprinkling your lawn every day, the HOA is under a kind of pressure then to do the right thing. And it's it's really hard for them to, to just, no, nah, we're going to keep on using tons of water in the middle of a drought. You know, they, they can't. They can't do that. It's, it's becoming illegal in places. So present them with a solution that works for them, that saves them money, that makes them look good, and also gives you the things that you want to do. You know, I think another problem that I see with this whole twisted form of civilization we've created can, can be summed up with what the HOA's main goal in life is. Preserve the property value. Property value, right? yep. Right? That's the <laughs> biggest thing we want to make sure, I preserve the property value. Where if we lived the way our grandparents did, we wouldn't give a damn. Because I'm never leaving. Right. This is my home. So I'm not worried right. about the resell value. And the more it's worth, the more they tax me on it. So I don't want it to be worth anymore. 
right? I remember my grandfather hitting the hitting a, a fit because they just raised his property taxes to two hundred and thirteen dollars, right? <laughs> so, so I mean, he didn't want his property value increased or even maintained. If they had come and told him, you know what, you know what, Biff, your place is worth fifteen hundred bucks, he would have said, good, here's your dollar, go away for a year, right? And, exactly. And it's this kind of mentality that it's not my home. It's what I own for a time so I can make more on it and get one just like it, only better with and get more out of it. And it's like constant moving up where America used to be a place the starter home meant it was a little home I could add on to it. I could put a garden in the backyard. I could do this and that with it, and I could make it what I want. Even though I was buying a an entry-level home, I would grow the house. Where now as we exceed the capacity of the house and move to another one, so it's become very important to us that when we exit – You know, we can we can take some money with us on the way out, or even if I'm going to stay there, you know what? It's been ten years. I'm going to take money out of my home. I'm going to take a loan against my own property, which doesn't really make a lot of sense either, unless you're living in this twisted modern society. Right, and that's again one of these places where we've been really brainwashed. We've lost the concept of a home. We think of it, you know, we think of the place we live now, the the land and the dwelling, as an investment or as a real estate deal or You know, something that's going to, to increase our own personal net worth. And we don't even really think about, is this really where I want to live? And is it a nice place? And am I making it more comfortable? It's just, are we increasing the value of this? So we've, we've really been brainwashed into this, this system where we've lost the concept of, of actually having a home and a neighborhood and a community and long-term friends and You know, an extended family and all of these things. It's a it's a terrible thing that we've lost. And I think you can see that, like, because now we have a society that when somebody gets old enough to need some help, we put them in a home. Uh, and hopefully they've saved enough money so they can pay for it, by the way. Uh, where we used to look to elders as like this source of wisdom. And it was often the, the elders who maybe were, you know, firing a few blanks, in the mental capacity here and there, but all of a sudden something would come up that no one knew what to do with, but grandma or great grandpa knew what to do. Yeah. And one of the things that this system and, and Wendell Berry has talked about how so many of our so-called solutions in society have actually just created, you know, a series of problems. And, and this, this business of, um, of kind of, of putting the elders out to pasture is something very similar because in the larger extended family, You know, you, yes, you took care of your parents or, you know, you, you and your siblings that all lived near each other took care of your parents, but your parents took care of your children. So mm -hmm. nowadays we pay to put our parents in a nursing home and we pay to put our children into daycare. So we're, you know, we're forced to mortgage our lives even more when with this more integrated system, all, all of those issues were, were a solution rather than two problems that we have to pay for to solve. Well, it's not just a solution for us either. It's a solution for the children and the elderly. They need each other. Exactly. Because yeah. we're the middle-aged person's killing himself to earn a living, whether it's by the sweat of his brow in a field or in a cubicle. And the, they don't have enough patience a lot of times to really hear out a child. And right. older people have figured that out. But the older people are like, you know, a lot of the people, you know, as they get older, especially a lot of people that they grew up with are not here anymore and they're gone and, and they need someone that – that kind of operates at that little bit slower level and has the patience and the time. So those two groups have always fit together perfectly. And what we've done is isolate them and then go, what the hell's wrong with our kids today? And why do we, you know, why are our older generation so miserable? 
Right, right. Yeah, I mean, I think most of us have fonder memories of our grandparents <laughs> in some ways than our parents. Right. I can remember watching my parents with their grandchildren and how mellow they were and how sweet they yeah. were and just thinking, oh, wow, I wish they'd treated me that way. But they couldn't. I mean, you know, they were too busy and I was too in their face as a little boy and that, that sort of thing. But my grandparents... They could handle it because they could. They could always give me back to my parents. Exactly. When yeah, I have a grandson now. It's simple. It's easy. You know, you 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 bring them over, you spoil them for a day, and you send them home, and you don't you worry about basic manners and things like that. But you don't get real uptight over the little things that really aren't that important. That when you were a father, you did. Like you wanted to get everything right, and you only had so much time to get it done in. And as a grandparent, you're like, well, that's a dance problem. But okay, you smarted <laughs> off to your grandma. That we're going to talk about. And it it almost seems like as you get older and wiser that the kids respond better than that, and they learn faster from you. And and the the, the your, your kids say to you, and your you know your your son-in-law or daughter-in-law says, how are how do you get them to do what you want so easily? And you're like, well, if I could tell you, I would, but I really can't because you're not going to listen. <laughs> right, right, yeah. And these, so these are some of the issues that you know that I think we're working with here. Of just what is it about this culture that we want to preserve, and what do we really need to jettison? How do we not? And, and as you as you asked earlier, you know, we're now talking about going back to the Stone Age. I mean, I don't think that's what humans do. We retain some of the things that we've gained, uh, and so what. You know, what I'm looking at with this idea of, of liberating ourselves with permaculture is what are the best pieces of different cultures? And, and one of those pieces is that I'm looking a lot at horticultural societies as opposed to agricultural societies, societies that base themselves more on gardening rather than farming, where they do a certain amount of hunting and a certain amount of wild foraging, and they do a certain amount of, of garden scale, but not the giant, you know, clearing 10,000 acres and planting GMO soybeans. That, that we're growing in polycultures, that we're allowing natural succession to occur, that we're increasing biodiversity. And we're doing that on the land, but it turns out that the same things are happening with human beings as well. We're encouraging a diversity of roles for human beings where you know, we're encouraging people to evolve and come up with new ideas rather than trying to regiment them all into rows the way a field of grain is set up. So there's a nice analogy there, and I think we have a lot to learn from these horticultural societies that that really gardened rather than farmed. And I think when you take that approach, you begin to be what you what we're supposed to be, regenerative toward the earth, right? We are actually supposed to be part of that natural system. And right now, we we seem in some places to have this huge overpopulation burden, um, and then other places you can look for miles and there's not a human being. And our natural instinct, because we've done such a poor job of taking care of the, of the earth is to think, well, those places where there aren't any people, we don't want any people to go there. We want to keep them pristine and isolated right. away from human beings, right? Where if we can actually figure out how to teach people instead of focus on, you know, how do we, how do we extract as much as we can from the areas we're allowed to be in and leave the rest of it alone? How can we actually make sure that where we go, things get better? Then all of a sudden this, this major burden of overpopulation, I think solves itself in two ways. One, you can go into these areas and make them better instead of worse. And two, I think that stable populations naturally level in their reproductive cycles. That if you had, if you look at where all the people are still being born in mass today, they're all the places where people are most concerned about, will I be here tomorrow? Where in our nation, there's almost no population growth if you take immigration out of the picture. Right. Exactly. And I, I think that's a very good point that if we, if we shift over to really 
seeing humans as as compatible with the rest of the planet with with nature and that we actually can enhance things that we can use our own our consciousness and our understanding to you know where are the places that are eroding where are the places where the the soil is not good where are the places where the water is polluted and and do gentle things to fix those that you know we then it's it's good for us to be out in the wild areas because we become just one of the many other tenders of those wild places, just like the other animals. Uh, and we also then would preserve those wild areas in a, in a different and better way. If we set them aside and sequester them and say, you know, humans can't be here, but at the moment resources get scarce, just like the Alaska National Wildlife Refuge. You know, we're never going to touch this. This is pristine. Sure. Oh, there's oil there. Oh, oh well. Yeah, yeah. right. <laughs> That's it. Whereas if there were people, and, and there are people living there, but we don't really recognize the Inuit and people like that. But, you know, if there are people living there and it's their home, you're really going to think twice about, well, you know, we're just going to send in the bulldozers and scrape it off and drill through it. Well, and, and they're we going to think twice about letting you, too. Exactly. Right. Right. I mean, there's, yeah, there's a certain, and I think that's another thing, like, like, so it's one thing to say, well, I care about the environment, and it's in, you know, 10 states away in a park, and then some bureaucrat that decided it was a park in the first place decides, well, we can take a little bit of it, and you're, you might be irate, but as long as the temperature in your pool doesn't change, and you're living yeah. a normal life, eh, it's not that big a deal, but if it's your backyard... Well, wait a minute. You know, that's the, you know, that, that's the way I've always said to preserve. If you want to preserve any human right, right, first thing to do is get people to exercise it. Exactly. When somebody jacks with it, it, it's personal. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. You've got a stake and, you know, and you've got a voice. You can mobilize with the other people who are affected by it. So yeah, I, I absolutely agree with that. That if, if we separate wilderness as some place away somewhere, then we're we're going to lose it over time because that's what the juggernaut of of this this civilization does. I think there's like permaculture is the solution, and I think that what it it starts to do is it changes the way you think with things that you wouldn't think would. So, for instance, I've got three acres. Instead of isolating it from wilderness, I'm trying to turn it into wilderness in a lot in a lot of ways, but a productive food wilderness and. Last year, I thought, I'll take a gamble. I'll plant currants and gooseberries in north-central Texas. Not exactly current ground zero. Mm. And I planted these these three black velvet gooseberries that looked like they were just burned to death by the alkaline soil uh, by the middle of last summer, and I gave up, and they're not there, and whatever. I mean, I'll find something else to plant next year. And I've been watching everything come back to life that made it this year, and I'm walking through, and there's this clump of you know weeds and stuff coming up in the swale where these things were planted, And I look and I go, that looks like a current leaf. And I look closer and go, no, that's a gooseberry. And th two of the three are gorgeous this year. Right? So that plant won't grow in this place the way it was when I got here. But it will now. And, and see, I think if you, we could start teaching children things like that, then when they're lied to by society that basically says the human race is a virus on the planet, they'll know it's a lie But yet they'll still look around and go, well, we're acting that way. So that means we're not being human. And, and I think that's the big lie that's been sold, sold to society, that the way you're behaving is perfectly normal. And you're going to have a sick, angry, mad, twisted society when everybody thinks they're being normal and they're being completely counter to their inner being. Right. When you're seeing that, that you know, when you view yourself as this kind of cancer on the landscape instead of, instead of an integral part that does wonderful things the way the way all the animals do 
you know, all the other animals. Uh, exactly. And that's, that's, I think, part of this idea of rewilding ourselves, re, you know, undomesticating ourselves and, and reconnecting so that we actually see, you know, that, that we, we increase biodiversity when, you know, when, when we bring in our favorite plants and put them in. We, we build the soil. We, we're capable of doing really, really wonderful things. So, you know, so let's get out there and start doing it. And there's no other creature that we know of that can actually look at an empty field and say, in 10 years, there'll be a forest there and make it happen. There's animals right. that advance forests. I mean, I've read Mollison's work about the, the European ox was what advanced the forest into the fields and all. I, I get that, that there's the, these dynamic interplaying relationships from the species, but it's not conscious. It's not like the ox is saying, you know what I'm going to do today? I'm going to advance me a forest. It didn't work that way. It just, his natural behavior created it. And I think our natural behavior does create a lot of these things, but our capacity to think If it's not controlled, backfires on us because we start thinking in, in scarcity mode. I, I've got to right. have more. I've got to take. I've got to be able to store. I mean, the thing you didn't say about grain, not only is it taxable, it's storable. Storable, right. So that makes a bunch of things happen. One, it starts with the mentality, acclimation of wealth and property. But two, I can take it from you, and I don't have to worry about what I do with it this week. So if you're growing tomatoes and, and, and lychee or something like that, and, and I come in as the government and I take – far more than, than, than my troops and I need, I got to get rid of it in two or three weeks or it's all spoiled. But if I take your grain, I can put it in a silo and I can keep it for two years. Right. Exactly. Yeah. That, that idea of a storable surplus is, is really transformative. All sorts of things come from that. All this, this hierarchy comes from that. Whereas if we are Just if, again, if we if we lose that scarcity mentality of, you know, there's there's going to be enough, there'll be a next harvest, we can grow something else. And I think that's that's one of the wonderful things that I really love about your work is that, you know, I think there's this cliche of the survival mentality as being, you know, or preppers as being people who hunker down in a bunker with their guns and their two years of food uh, in, you know, freeze dried and in bins. And what you're bringing out and what people like you are bringing out is that it's not storing up this food. It's creating the flow of it and creating it with others. And that is true food security and, and security in, in all ways is, is creating these lush, productive, abundant landscapes that will take care of us all, all together. And, and, you know, we, yeah, you want to, you want to store up a certain amount for a rainy day for problems, of course, but it's really about the flow. It's about the, you know, this, this constant production and, and yield that, that you get from a pretty small investment using, uh, using permaculture techniques. So my hat's off to you for really, really catching that and getting that idea out there. Well, thank you. And I think that the way we try to explain that is that, yeah, we store food, but it's because of this dynamic. As long as there's something to eat today and tomorrow, and I know my kids are going to eat today, tomorrow, next week, then getting more, creating more is not a problem. It's, it, it's actually relatively easy if we manage an ecosystem right to make sure there's enough food and if there's a shortfall that if we can get through that shortfall, it's okay. It'll come back around and we'll be all right. But if my, if I know my child is going to starve tomorrow, then getting more is not easy. And right. it usually involves having to take it somebody, take it from right. somebody. So the, 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 the cliche is that the prepper is selfish because we have all this stuff. When the reality is it's more of a mentality that by making sure while things are in surplus and abundance, I'm a good steward of what I have for my family and my community, 
if there is a shortfall, I will never be tempted to take what you have. In fact, I'm going to be the guy giving you what you need so you can get by. Get started again. Exactly. Right. Right. That's that. You know, it's putting on your own oxygen mask before you help somebody else. You, you have know, to. You, you, right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I love the people that I, I talk to people that have said, I ain't doing that. I'm like, so your kid's going to be in really good shape. Well, they freaked out. They're scared of the mask. They've yanked it off and you're passed out in your own drool. Right. You know, I mean, you got to think a little bit more instead of these reactionary things. That's that's another thing I love about permaculture is it requires thinking. And a lot of what you're talking about leads toward the world of, of anarchy, which there were some really interesting mixes when you put a giant A up at permaculture voices. There was there was one girl sitting six seats down to my left. And I swear to God, I went, ooh, <laughs> shiver. Right. Oh, my anarchy. God, it's oh Toby. God. What do we do? You know, and it was. It was it was funny, but um, my my feeling is that it is our solution, but it's largely misunderstood because there are people like, oh, that's dangerous or whatever. And my response has always been, but the people that you fear are never going to take up that philosophy. They're the ones that don't want it. Right, right. I mean, I think that's part of why the idea of anarchy has has so many really scary connotations around it is because it's it is the scariest idea in the world to the state to the powers that be that and and again if you look at the root of the word anarchy does not mean no rules or no laws arcos means ruler so it's it's no rulers we're taking care of ourselves and to me that requires the most self-discipline uh, and the most conscientiousness of of any form of of government or form of order is where we're doing it ourselves on on whatever the smallest scale possible is. So when you look at really what the heart of anarchy means and the real, you know, the, the writings of, of anarchist thinkers who who are really really doing doing great work around it, it's the most responsible form of you know, quote government that there that there could possibly be. So we need to get rid of this fear that's that's been been really again brainwashed into us by the state i think is you know anarchy is this horrible thing that's it just means everybody killing everybody else and stealing whatever they want uh, and that's a, a really great um idea for the state to propagate so we need to really root that out of ourselves and understand that that anarchy would be the in in the true sense of the word is the most responsible form of of civil order that we could possibly have. And I, I think people get that in a twisted way because the objection is always, well, anarchy would be great if everybody was ethical and moral and responsible, but since they're not, we need the state. And my response to that has always been, stop worrying about everybody else. Are you ethical and moral and responsible? Can you personally exist without the state making you do it? And by the way, are you an anarchist and don't realize it? Do you drive five miles over the speed limit because you've made a choice for yourself that that's okay? You know, and in every place that you've ever chosen to voluntarily violate the law because you felt like you could get away with it and it was, it was okay, you, you've exercise some level of anarchism and by the way if i if i removed all the law and it was okay for you to run down and knock an old lady in the knee and steal her, her pills out of her purse are you going to do it would you do it right? yeah. and if the answer is well i wouldn't do it then you don't need to worry about everybody else just worry about you and you start practicing this type of philosophy in your life and teaching your friends your community your children to be this way 
Yeah, that's that's exactly it. That we, you know, it's it's where I'm I'm working so much now more on the local level and the community level because these these larger systems, the state and the national level, are are things that I really can't do very much about. But I have a huge influence over myself, my family, my friends, and and my community simply by trying to be a model of what I want to see in the world and. No, it's it's like you know we have these cliches like taking candy from a baby or you know you don't you don't knock over an old lady you know they're they're just they're things like that that are really you know bred into us where where those those are just not things that decent people do and nobody wants to be thought of someone who you know who knocks over an old lady you don't you don't do that and I, I think we have these innate senses of of right and wrong and if, right exactly what you said if if we practice it at home first. Uh, I think the rest of the world is going to take care of itself pretty well. Well, and the and other, then, I mean, the other thing is, right, so you're not going to knock the old lady over. But I imagine if somebody tries to do it in front of you, whether or not there's a law against it, you're not going to permit it. Right, yeah. And and this is one of the things that I think we can learn from from earlier societies, from non-agricultural societies, is the way the way that they have kept things in control traditionally is that they're, they're very flat hierarchies that – that accumulating lots of material goods is something that, that many hunter-gatherer cultures know is not, not healthy. And they actually have real mechanisms for redistributing surplus and making sure that no one you know, gets too proud or, or too much control. And if someone, if someone is, if someone's starting to hoard stuff, the first thing that happens in a hunter-gatherer society is that, that somebody starts making jokes about it. You know, oh, what's wrong with you? Are you scared of a rainy day? You know, what are you lugging all that junk around for? That sort of thing. And if that doesn't work, if they don't get the message, then the next step is two or three big guys go up to them and say, you know, you really should let go of that stuff. And if they still don't get the message, then they understand that this person's insane. You know, they really recognize this, this person has gone berserk. Right. They're, they're, they're a sociopath at that point and they either banish them from the tribe or they just kill them. And that, that it's, it's a very steep hierarchy, you know, very steep pattern there of, you know, you either learn it or you're out of there. Uh, and, and those, that, so that's the sort of, of mechanism that a true anarchical society would have is that it only takes, you know, two or three people going over to someone who's being unruly saying, you know, you need to stop that. And you want to stop it before they get their big gang of 20 guys yeah. who, you know, tries to control the whole thing. Yeah, definitely. I think the other thing is like, so in traditional anarcho societies, in most tribal societies, that's what they are. There might be a chief or what have you, but he doesn't necessarily have a lot of what we would think of as power or authority. And he certainly doesn't tend to have what you would think of as a lot of wealth. So leadership then is actually a burden. It's a service. So if I have leadership that gives me a great big house, a lifetime, you know, healthcare, a pension, all types of wonderful things, lobbyists bringing me stuff and, and what have you, then I obviously fear losing leadership, right? And it doesn't right. matter whether I think I'm good at it or not. I just want to keep it. But if leadership is actually a burden and I ever get to a point where I feel, well, Toby could do a better job leading right now, then it's a very natural thing for me to step to the side and say, dude, I think you should take take over for a while. Yeah, because I don't yeah, care they, because I still have the same stuff I did before I before and after I was leading. Right, 
right? That's it, that there are not these huge benefits of more power, more goods that it actually is, is work for you to do. And understanding that, that our, our leaders are not born with a crown on their head. They're just, they're putting on a hat to get a particular task done. And when the task is over, they set that hat down or they give it to someone else or, you know, they get ready to pick it up again when that job needs to be done again. And instead of having these entrenched power systems where, you know, the divine right of kings or, you know, I'm a senator because I'm better at all this than everybody else. It's just, you know, you're, you have a task to do. So you're focusing on the job rather than, you know, how much power, how much, how many, you know, what, what size house can I get for, uh, for doing this job? Right. The idea that it's a service, it's a bit of a burden. It's kind of like serving on a nonprofit board. You know, yeah. it's, it's great to do for a while. And then it's like, OK, this is really kind of a lot of work. And I'd love for somebody else to take my seat on the board. That's it's that level that we want to keep a lot of our power structures at. Yeah. If it's a nonprofit, and I'm serving on the board. Sure. I'm going to step aside at some point, let somebody else take it over, keep things fresh. But if I'm the CEO of the Red Cross flying around on a G5, I'm not so quick to give that up. Right, right, exactly. Yeah, removing those perks of of power, I think. And this is this is I think something that we really need to be working towards is that power and authority has to ha- has to be revocable. That we have to have hmm. good mechanisms to easily revoke power if people are abusing it. Because then then you can give people authority to get a task done, but written right into the charter is and, you know, if you're not serving the public good, we can pull you right out of it really easily. And if your benefit is independent of your service as a leader, right? So if, if people in a, in a community basically benefit from their positive actions in that community, they benefit, like, it, it doesn't even necessarily mean people, one person might not be able to be what we would look at and call wealthier than another because they worked hard or whatever. But when the wealth and the, and everything is connected to the power, then you get into a, a point where you want the power solely for the wealth and for the prestige and for all the other things it brings, where if those two things are separated, neither of them is the problem they are when they're combined. Right, exactly. And this is where, again, permaculture's idea of really looking at the functions and how we can separate things that have become glued together that, that really need to be separate and your idea of, of separating the, you know, the rewards from the actual the the physical rewards from the actual exercise of power and that's that's where again the scarcity mentality that agriculture has given us comes up that that if i understand that i'm going to have food that i'm going to have a place to live that my community is going to help take care of me if if i get hurt or if you know if my crop fails or something if i already know that just in the background i'm in good shape then I'm not going to need to grab power to get try and get more of that stuff. I can I can come from this place of abundance and understand that it's going to be fine. I've got enough food. My family's going to going to eat. All that's taken care of. Let's go out and have fun then, rather than you know this fear thing of trying to grab more and more and more and you know get that third vacation house and these sorts of things. I don't. We don't want those burdens. Yeah, and I think that one of the things we have to work on though is is people is for these anarchist groups to coalesce on their own, this self organizing structure, and actually develop to a point where they become communities and things like that. Is it's not just the leaders that have to be very educated and understand wisdom. It's 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 it's, it's everybody in the group. So the way I try to explain this is with this, like a simple little analogy story uh, where there's this farmer and he lives across the street from a, a man and his son and then there's this big brush pile down the road on the farmer's side of the road. 
And this little bird comes and starts building a nest in the brush pile. Well, a farmer goes out and yanks the, the bird's nest out of the brush pile, throws it on the ground. The bird tweets at him. She's all mad. The son across the street is irate. Can't believe the farmer did this to the poor bird. And the next day, the bird's back building a nest, and he does it again. The little boy runs to the dad and tells him, you know, hey, Farmer Thompson just smashed this bird's nest two days in a row. And the, and the father says, I, I don't know why, but he must have a reason. He, he knows what he's doing. And, you know, the father exhibits some confidence in the farmer. Well, the next day, coming down the road is the county, and they set the brush piles on fire to get rid of them. <laughs> right, so the farmer was moving the birds. So when you look at that, you actually can see all like, because I've I've been like the worker bee in a company and the boss, and I always thought that the other side had it better when I was on the other side. So the bird is like the the, the person in society that has like no real understanding of all the the burdens and all the efforts and all the other things that go on. And even when it's been helped, it doesn't. The bird is off building a, a nest somewhere else now. Doesn't even know the farmer helped it. Still mad at the farmer. The little boy is a little bit more sophisticated because he's worried about not just himself but the bird, right? But he still he doesn't even have any faith in 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 the farmer. And then the the father of of the little boy is a little bit more advanced in his understanding of wisdom and saying, "Hey, I don't know why, but I know I have confidence in this leader." And then the farmer, being the leader here, has knowledge the others didn't. He knew the county was coming to set the brush piles on fire. Right. right, and there's, so there's this trust in there at each level of kind of trusting that the the next level understands what it's doing. But but you you need to have a small enough community where you know, where you actually do have some sort of direct connection to that that leader, where the leader is leading because of competence, not because of force or fear, but simply because we recognize that that leader is competent at this thing. That's, that's what real leadership is. And, and we love that. We are, we're herd animals, you know, or, or pack animals. I watch my, my dog play with other dogs sometimes and they hand leadership off to various different dogs based on which one looks like it's having the most fun or which one is the best hunter or which one has found the coolest thing. We, we recognize competence and we, we give leadership to, to those competent people in their field. And then when the game changes, we shift our, our, our handing off of competence to someone else rather than being born with a crown that you keep all of your life. Definitely. And, and what that brings me to is the, the final part of the story, right? So if I had most people that could draw well, and I told them that story, I said, draw a picture of the boy, the father, and the farmer yanking the thing out with the bird tweeting, what percentage of people do you think would draw the farmer as an old man? <laughs> most, That's really but there's no reason yeah. whatsoever to believe the farmer's an old man. He just had knowledge of something. So we can't always expect that our leaders will come from a certain family or be a certain age or gone through a certain training. Many times it's simply that this person has knowledge of something, and that leads me to another scary word that you used out there that freaked out the anarchists right after you freaked out everybody else, which was <laughs> socialism. And, right. and socialism, of course, as a government idea, I think it's a terrible idea. But as a human idea, I think it's a natural idea because if we were on an island, we all got stuck there together, And you told me your background, I'd say, well, guess what, Toby? Dude, you're our medic. And you'd say, I'm not a doctor. I have everybody here. You have the most knowledge about stuff like that. So, you know, whatever you might particularly have knowledge about from past experience or learnings or whatever, then we maybe not com completely defer to you, but we're going to at least say, hey, do you think you can 
figure something out here. And I think that's how societies naturally organize. Right. I, I think so, too. They, they, I've, I've been in, in Hawaiian villages, native Hawaiians, and watching them planning an event. And they, they all, they really recognize, you know, well, your pigs are nice and fat this year, so we'll, ta- we'll have one of your pigs for the luau, and well, your, you know, your harvest didn't really go so good this year, so that's fine, because you've been good in the past, we'll give you a free ride, you know. And they, they recognized, you know, it really is that, literally, that from each according to their ability and to each according to their needs, and that's the, that's the heart of what, what socialism as, as a social program, not as a form of government, we've, we think of it as a form of government, but it's really, it's really more to do with economics. It's really more to do with, with the distribution of resources that how, how can we make that equitable? And that's the, that's the heart of, of true socialism is, is how do we equitably distribute resources and labor and, and all of these burdens so that it's, it's shared well and, and we're all taking care of one another. But as long as the state's involved, people make that decision that aren't part of the production and the, and, 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 and the, the, the reality on the ground. So when you say redistribute, what people think of today is, well, that's where I take this guy's efforts from Dallas, Texas, who's busting his ass every day and give it to somebody sitting on their ass in Newark, New Jersey. Right. Not that there's anything wrong with Newark or Dallas is the perfect place. Just that's, that's what's in the head. Where what you've just described, everybody that's part of that system knows everybody else that's part of that system. There's a a very small cap on the total population of a society that can function that way. And once it gets to a certain point, it almost has to splinter off and do its own thing. And then I have, as a voluntarist, the ability to say, I don't want to be part of this society. I'm going to go be part of this society. Right, right. And I think those, those numbers are, are actually fairly small. I think a lot of our difficulties come from these giant, uh, associations that we form where we have, we have no, no knowledge of, we don't know the people on, you know, higher up the level. There's something called Dunbar's number that I think a lot of people are familiar with. And it's a, I believe he was a neurologist, but he was looking at the way the brain was wired and the human brain really only has enough wiring in it to hold about 150 people as as actual people individuals mm-hmm. where you know you kind of remember their birthdays and you know what they're like and you you can associate a real person with each one and past 150 it just becomes something like you know the letter carrier and the woman behind the counter over at that store where you can identify them but you can't really hold more than about 150 and that to me seems like a pretty good size uh, of the number of people who can kind of take care of one another. There's enough diversity so that there can be, you know, a doctor and a blacksmith and, a, you know, a tech guy or whatever it is um, in, in about 150 people. And if we get much larger than that, then, as you've said, you, you, it, it buds off, it fissions into a, you know, another group that, that grows up to that size. And what always happens is the person in power who wants to maintain power will then realize the key to my maintaining power is to make sure as few of these people know each other as possible and to make sure that the person that's receiving the distribution feels like the guy that gave it to him is the enemy and the guy that gave the distribution feels like the guy that received it's the enemy, even though I'm the one that did it to both of them. And as long as they're mad at each other, they're not looking at me. Right. That's the, the classic power uh, method is to is to divide and conquer, keep other people mad at each other and you can keep them divided. And we... No, we need to learn. It's why I love the uh, the meme of the the ninety nine percent, just helping us recognize that, you know, most of us really are part of this larger group that that is not 
getting anywhere near the the right proportion of benefits that the the ninety nine percent need to stick together and and you know and help each other rather than continue to wish that we could each be a member of the one percent someday because that that ain't gonna happen. We need to recognize that we need to create a society in which we're happy with what we have now rather than waiting for that promotion or that bigger house or these things that, that allow us to remain unsatisfied right now, praying that someday we'll, we'll be satisfied. It's, it's get ourselves satisfied now with what we have because it's, it's not really going to change. It's not going to be better in the future if we don't make today a really good place to be. What are some ways you think we can can really begin to do that on a concrete level? I mean, one of my issues is that whenever I start thinking about what can be done, I realize that the the advice that I've given young people who are a little bit too starry-eyed about government fixing the problem is true, and that is that I always tell them, sooner or later in your life you'll find something that not only are you upset about, you'll decide it's your thing to do something about. And you'll go out and you'll decide to figure out what to do about it. It'll take you a while. You'll figure out a plan. You'll come up with an action idea. You'll say, this is my, my thing. It might or may, may or may not pass muster, but sooner or later you'll find something that does. And then you'll realize my first challenge is economics. I need money to get this done. And you'll find out a miraculous thing about money. If you want it to put in your pocket, hard to come by. You want it to do things for other people, it's actually not that hard to solve the financial problem. So you'll get funding or you'll find the money or you'll do whatever it is. And then when you start enacting the solution, you'll run into the second hurdle, which is the big one. And some of a gun, if that's not going to be the very government you have faith in. And yeah, you can do things to work through, work around, like you've talked about already. But I often find like, well, if the energy that was spent to appease these people and get around it and do a halfway solution was actually just put to the solution, boy, we'd get so much further so fast. Because we have people trying to raise pigs on pasture and some idiot coming by and saying, well, they're cold. Well, they're pigs. They live outside. That's what they do. There's six and a half million of them in Texas running around the desert with no help whatsoever, and they're okay. So I'm pretty sure this guy's pigs are all right. So how do we begin to really combat that, not just theoretically, but with actions? Right. And those, I mean, those are, those are kind of our big issues. And this, this again is where you know, I keep looking at the local scale as as the leverage point, whether that just means, you know, I mean, lo- local to me is like, who's going to take care of my dog when, you know, when I'm when I'm out of town or something like that? It's 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 not, you know, someday I will have a community someday. There'll be, you know, people around taking care of me. It's it's right now today. Who is who is my community? Do I know my neighbors? Have I met them? So they're they're very, very small steps to make just little things like that. But I think a, another important part of it is is really getting to understand ourselves better and understand what what each of us um, what the special abilities of, of each each of us is because I my my life changed so much when I finally paid attention to the things that gave me joy in life rather than doing what was expected of me. I was very much brought up in a family where there were things that were expected of me and I was supposed to make a certain amount of money and have a certain kind of job and be a certain way. And it wasn't until I really started looking at, you know, when I was like 40 when this happened, um, look at what really gives me joy in life and what lights up other people when I do it uh, and those sorts of things. This This idea of you know, what, what, what really, you know, it's, it's the, it's the old cliche of follow your bliss in a certain way. And you can become of so much service, so much more value 
Um, and that, that to me is the heart of it is how do I become a valuable person? Because if I'm a value, I'll be taken care of. The rest of the community is going to want me there as opposed to, you know, how do I get what's going to make me, me feel safe? It's, it's how do I, how do I find a place where I'm a value? And usually you can spot that by what do you love to do? What really brings you joy? Because if, if something brings you joy, the chances are there's somebody else out there, a few other people out there to whom it will also bring joy. So that's the indicator for me is what feels good, what's fun, what am I really good at, and then how can I use that to give something to the community so I'll be supported. And that's that's kind of the level that I'm trying to encourage people to work at is is let's all be valuable together and we'll each be able to give other people all the things that we need. And instead of me trying to take care of myself, I got 50 people helping take care of me, and I can help take care of, of lots of other people as well. How do you see that progression continuing? I mean, I am starting to get really encouraged by that. It sounds so simple. It sounds like it's a drop in the bucket, so to speak. <laughs> but what I've started to notice is that it seems like the numbers of people that think this way – not just in permaculture, but certainly the permaculture community seem to be swelling. They seem to be heading toward critical mass. That it's a lot like when when the internet started, and and I remember being part of that whole. You know, we're gonna we're gonna be able to to build businesses here, and people were whining that it wasn't coming fast enough, and it was like just just be this is coming. This is it's gonna take time before people you know are able to realize they don't have to be spammed by in their real mailbox by AOL with a disk to be on the internet. It's gonna it's but it's coming, and you could see it was coming. I kind of feel like I talk to a lot of people that even predate your entry into permaculture, people that took, you know, PDCs from Bill when that was the only way to do it, people that took their PDC in the 80s that felt like everybody's just going to do this. And it didn't happen. And then it didn't happen. And it seems like a lot of what they were expecting is starting to happen now. Like it's a different vibe, I think, than it was 20 years ago. Yeah, I, I think it is. And, and something I, I really have been noticing, um, we, we spent my wife and I spent 2010 to 2012 kind of being nomadic. We were traveling around the country, staying different places, uh, and we, we wound up in campgrounds and RV parks and things like that. And I was really exposed to a lot of people who I normally wouldn't come in contact with. And everybody felt like there was something really wrong. That, that the future was not looking rosy. And they all, you know, everybody was pointing the finger at different people. It was Obama. It was the Tea Party. It was, you know, it was somebody else's fault. But everybody we ran into seemed to get that this, this culture is just not really working anymore. It's not very satisfying. And I, I think we're approaching this critical mass of where people really are getting that, you know, they're, their salary isn't going to keep up with, you know, with inflation or with the Joneses or with the rich or anything like that. And they're getting that, you know, they're well, all, all of these pieces are coming together where if we just keep doing what we're doing, it's not going to work out that well. And so people are really starting to look at, you know, and, and need now need an alternative. I think 15, 20 years ago, permaculture was a cool thing to do. You know, it was, hey, it'll be great to be more self-reliant, to shrink my energy footprint and these sorts of things. But it was, an, it was just an option. You know, it was a lifestyle that you could take on as opposed to now where I think it's, it's needed. 
It's like if you want to have a better life, you're going to have to do something that looks a lot like permaculture or you're going to be you know, stuck on this treadmill and potentially squeezed out and among the growing ranks of the unhappily unemployed. <laughs> uh, and, and I would rather see people happily unemployed as far as the system is concerned. And you know, So I, I think we are. We're reaching this critical mass of dissatisfied people who who are looking for something else. And what I want to do is create these beautiful, delightful, sexy, fun, food-filled alternatives where when someone starts to freak out or feel like, you know, oh, I'm, I'm losing it or my job's not going to be there or I'm unhappy, we can just say, here, doesn't this look wonderful? Come on over here and help us and we'll show you how to do it and we'll show you how to set one of these up yourself. You know, that's, that's what I, I feel like permaculture is doing is getting ready to be this very needed place that, that people are, are going to want to be coming in larger and larger numbers. I think the switch has to be instead of what should everybody do, what can I do? I think that's like the big, the big difference. Like all political sol- solutions revolve around passing some sort of law or regulation or policy that requires that somebody else do something because you think it's better for everybody. Right. Whereas the, the solutions that are at like the 150 headcount and below, and I love that number, by the way, um, are, are always start with, well, what can I do? And I think if everybody starts asking what they can do, then a lot of the problems that are in our way, and they won't all go away. There's no, like people always want like the, what I call the unicorn solution. Like, how can we just get everybody to do permaculture? Well, that's not going to happen. So let's just, let's just take that and stick it there on the shelf and we'll look at it once in a while and imagine about it. But let's, let's stay in the now and the reality. So the question actually is, what can I do to further permaculture or sustainable living or whatever does it for you? I, I love permaculture because I think, See, first of all, I don't think of permaculture as anything to do in of itself with plants. I see it as a troubleshooting methodology. It's a a method of thinking where I look at any problem and then I use a process, just like a mechanic does to figure out what's wrong with a car, to figure out how to fix it. But unlike a car that has a very specific troubleshooting chain, it's a dynamic organism and all the options are available. But I'm going to be methodical in how I take it apart and put it back together. And so that's why I try to spread permaculture beyond just, hey, transform your backyard. That's a huge part of it because it meets that first immediate need. How am I going to feed myself? Right. But food, clothing, shelter. I mean, for survivalists, it should be where they start because every one of your survival needs is met in this, in this process. But if we can get people thinking about fixing things, then we're not going to have to worry about the HOA eventually. Let's put the eventually in there. That's going to bitch about your yard because as soon as everybody starts trying to, like you said about drought, fixing things, if you start trying to fix the drought problem and you have a Bermuda grass yard, you can't help but realize, you know what, that's got to that's got to go. At least some of it has to go. It can't all be there. Yeah, and that, and that's the, I think you're you're on exactly the same page as me about what permaculture is. It's a problem solving set of tools. It's a it's an approach for arriving at solutions, and and it's it just like auto mechanics 
just like car repair, it does have a set of processes to go through, but they're very broad and they're applicable to so many different things. You know, what we ask, what are the important influences on the thing that we're trying to work with? What are the important functions going on on the things that we're trying to work with? What are the patterns that are in place on the thing that we're trying to solve? And then we can figure out what strategies to develop, which of all the many different tools we've got out there are going to be the most appropriate. And that's that's why there's room for, for just about everyone, you know, for really everyone in, in permaculture, is that whatever skill set you've got, whatever thing brings you joy that you really love to do out in the world, whether it's grow food or you know, repair computers or whatever it is, um, there's a place for you to apply those skills and, and be of value in this larger picture with these other 150 people or whatever it is. But right, it's, it's what can I do to make this situation better? That's, that's the question that, you know, that we need to be asking rather than, you know, how can we get some piece of legislation passed that's going to fix it? Because that's at such a large scale, you know, it's going to have unforeseen consequences where if, if I understand what I'm working with on a personal level, I, I know it well enough to know that if I do this, that's going to happen. And if I do this, that other thing's going to happen. So which one do I want to do? I also love that I think permaculture is based on ethics and principles, but not rules. Uh, and what I right. mean by that is, like, if I'm building a house, there's certain principles I have to follow, or it will fall on top of me and kill me. Now, contrary to what the government might believe, if I'm going to live in there, I don't want it to fall on me and kill me, so I'm going to not violate those principles unless I don't know how to do it right. And if I'm building houses for somebody else, I don't want it to fall on them either because then no one's going to come to me to get a house built anymore. So I'm going to follow the principles whether there's a rule or not. But a rule would be that the house has to be square. The house has to be built out of sticks. It has to be insulated a certain way, wired a certain way. And that quashes the creativity to where the most brilliant minds in the world are building houses are now trying to figure out how to build a better house that looks, functions, and acts exactly like the house that we've been building for a 100 years. Well, there's no way that their true ability can shine through with that because they're trying to build a square house made out of pine. You know, I mean, or, okay, we're going to use uh, insulated panels, but yet we're still going to build a box. It's still going to look, it's, we still want it to fit into the HOA community. And what we have to really kind of do is get people starting to ask if we just threw away everything and started with a bare piece of dirt how would we design a neighborhood right with what no would you rules, arrive at but we're going to have ethics and principles yeah yeah exactly it's it's really it's arriving at a solution rather than either imposing one that we already know or using a cookie cutter it's what's going to be the best thing to do in this situation and when you first get started out of course that seems a little scary you know well we've got to figure everything out but but by using the the principles of of good design principles of permaculture we already have ruled out a lot of things that aren't going to work so we can really focus on this solution set and work very quickly to a great design for whatever the, the situation is. We can look at what hasn't worked in the situation, what has worked in the situation, and uh, and then just apply those with modifications and come, in, come up with these wonderful novel solutions that are, are really appropriate for exactly that setting, whatever it is, that context. I mean, let's say we do a little thought of experiment here, right? We're going to create Tobyville, right? So we've got a 20-acre a, a, a piece of, of, of field, and it, it's it's somewhat isolated, and we're going to develop a community there. I mean, the first thing we're not going to do is we're not going to run a pipe 40 miles away to bring water in 
and have a pipe next to it going 40 miles to take poop away. So then we have to start with, okay, well, how if we're going to have a 40-acre, how many people can live here? We're going to follow ethics. We're going to set limits to population and consumption, right? We're going to take right. care of earth, care of people, and we're going to say, well, of that number of people that can live here, how are we going to deal with their waste And how are we going to deal with their water? And I don't know exactly what the answer to that would be because it's climate specific. It's people. There's social design components there, but we, we absolutely know what it's not going to be. It's not going to be the current solution. And if we put 20 people and said like two per acre or 20 families and did some common areas and whatever, we're not going to put in 20 septic tanks either and 20 right. wells. So. Right. That's exactly what any subdivision would do. You'd either pipe it in and pipe it out, or you'd put in one septic tank and one well per dwelling. And that's absolutely not what we do. And it, so immediately you know that we have to come up with a different solution. Right. You're, you're looking at just what are the needs? You know, the needs are, are their basic human needs are pretty simple. You know, there's food, water, shelter, and then there's things like security and justice and things like there aren't that many of them. And what, what permaculture helps us do is identify, right, what are the needs in this particular context? If we've got the waste for 20 families, then what scale is the best solution going to operate at for that group of people under those circumstances in that climate with that geography? And it's, it's not that difficult to come up with. Okay. This is what we do rather than, you know, code says everybody gets their own septic system. It's, it's not, it doesn't work like that. Yeah, but it's, it's, it's difficult to design around that right now because there's people with, with what I call artificial authority appearing real, uh, that gets real, real fast. They come in and make you do that. But it's, it's interesting to see what happens when some of these renegade communities do just go far enough off the grid, so to speak, to where, eh, we're not going to bother them. And, and then, you know, 20 years later, you look at it and half of them completely fail because they underestimate what's going on. And it, it's hard to go. It, it, it's harder than it should be because you have to go so, so such inhospitable places to, to do it, really. But the ones that make it turn into places that people travel to go see. Yeah, exactly. Right. They become the models. And that's that's what what we're looking for is is models of the solutions that that work. And, yeah, they're going to be a bunch that don't because we we're we're creating something new. We're trying to we're trying to turn this culture around and there are going to be some failed experiments. But boy, are those successful ones going to be really valuable to us. And those become the models for the other, you know, get successful on a small scale and then repeat those successes until you're operating at a larger scale. Well, isn't that what we deal with all the time, too? Like if you do something and it doesn't work, they say, see, and it doesn't work where the, the supposed solutions fail every day. Right. You know, right. say, well, anarchism can't work because there'll be crime. Well, I don't know if you've read <laughs> right. the crime blotter in the newspaper, but there's there's crime all the time. Where if there was no speed limits, there'd be wrecks all the time. Saw three yesterday. I mean, so there's like this Nirvana fantasy that if you don't get it bang on right every time, that then you just everything's wrong about it, and we need to stick to what we have. Well, we haven't progressed as a species by doing that. It, it's always been the people that say whatever you say can't be done can be done. It's what took man from not being able to use mechanized flight in a hundred years to walking on the moon. That wasn't because we said let's 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 use a horseless carriage to get to the moon, right? It took a rocket, right? And that that is what we do. You know, we we find these novel solutions that, right? You can't you can't just say 
you know, we're not going to do that because there would be problems with it. We already are living with a problem set. And part of part of the difficulty is that many of those problems are so in the background for us that we forget that they're there, that we forget that there is corruption. We forget that there are losses, that there's homelessness or whatever, you know, whatever those background problems are, that a that a new system is going to have its problems. But we've already kind of made our peace with so many problems now that that could be dealt with 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 newer, smaller scale and more equitable systems. Sure, we'll run into some problems too, but, but they're solvable. That's the thing. If you can identify them, I, I, I don't believe that, that at, at small scale, there is any such thing as a completely unsolvable problem. It's just at large scale that we run into things that, you know, that, that they're calling predicaments where there actually isn't a solution. But at small scale, I'm, I'm pretty much in the camp that, that just about everything is solvable. I think a lot of the things that we rely on the the state to do in its various forms today, we should be doing ourselves. For instance, conflict resolution. So if you and I had a business dealing and we decided we couldn't resolve it and we went to the state, the state doesn't care about an equitable solution. It cares about law, code, contract. And, it, and we both go to the state and we say, tell us who's right. And they say, okay, very well. Toby's right, Jack's wrong, here you go, Toby, you win, and it's over. Right. And it, it costs us both the dear Lord's fortune, time and energy and resource to do it. And the state never says, Mr. Hemingway, would you be open to the following? And Mr. Spirko, would you be open to that? Oh, no, but you're, you know, if there's any hope, okay, won't the two of you go away for 24 hours, come back, and, and, and tell me what you think about that? That would be how a, an impartial arbitrator with both sides' interests at heart might handle that problem. And I think in a 150-person society, instead of right or wrong, if you got you know one guy that was leading the session with a whiteboard and a marker and everybody right. shouting out <laughs> solutions, it's inconceivable that after 15, 20 solutions were issued, that you and I wouldn't go, you know what, that third one, I could live with that. Yeah, I could yeah. live with that. And now our relationships preserved because we've leaned on the community to help us work through a problem rather than fix it for us. Right. And and often with those sorts of solutions, you come up with something that, you know, you and I would look at and go, hey, that's better than anything we would have come up with. That works for both of us sure. or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. It's the scale that matters again. And we don't parent that way if we're smart parents either. You don't just say, Johnny, you're right. Susie, you're wrong. Go away. Right. right. You always make Johnny and Susie try to kind of get along. And I guess the larger community is a larger family. But once you get to a certain size, I ain't got time for that, right? I just got to, you know, as long as you both pay your taxes and go away, I don't care. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's it. Great. So what, what's, what's, the, what's the next plans for, for Toby, man? What are you, you going to be doing in the you know, coming months? Right, right. Well, I've got a pretty exciting uh, deal coming up in July. A, a new book of mine is going to be launched. Uh, it's called The Permaculture City, and it's a book on urban and suburban permaculture, that it's really about you know, how do we – scale permaculture into urban areas. And what, what was fun for me in writing it was that I realized that food is a pretty small piece of it. So there's, there's, only, there's only three chapters of the book that actually about gardening and growing food. And even one of those is, is growing food in community. And a lot of the book is really looking at the people issues in urban areas because that's the biggest resource in any city is, or town even um, are the people. So a lot of this book for me is kind of taking permaculture into the the most innovative and interesting places that permaculture has been going the social side the livelihood side 
um, the the side looking at you know more equitable distri- distribution of resources and things like that. So it's uh, it's it's coming out in July called the Permaculture City, and I'm super super excited about it. I'm a little nervous because it's new territory for me and it's new territory for permaculture, and I hope it's going to go over well. Uh, but so far, the publisher likes it, and everybody who's read it um, likes it. And it, but it really is carrying permaculture into what we call the invisible structures, the the livelihood, the social side. The how do we how do we learn to work with each other when we have a lot of different interests going on, and we're living in fairly dense areas. So that's that's uh, going to keep me pretty busy when that comes out in July, the book launch and doing book tours and, and um, kind of babying, you know, nursing that into existence. So it sounds like there's a lot of social design built into this. And that's, that's something that I came to a little bit later in permaculture and really developed a, a, a real understanding that that was where the magic was because you, you need buy-in from communities to get things done. And I'm not the most diplomatic person, so I tend to let other people do that. But that's knowing your strengths. But it's important right. to understand that. And it's weird how it comes at you, and then you start thinking about things at a much more personal level. So the first person I ever heard use the phrase social design was Dave Jackie on that awful project in Montana because of the government, right? right. But he said that, and then when I was doing the design on my property – Something so stupid like that, or not really stupid, but but leads to these like these little things that you would never think of before. I'm putting a couple pecans in my food forest. I need a buffer zone for the juglone. I look up all these different things that can tolerate the juglone from the pecans to plant around them. And one of the things I find is mulberry, and I think mulberry is great. And then I think, yeah, but if I have red mulberry or purple mulberry over there, the birds are going to crap all over my neighbor's house. Mm-hmm. Right, so I'm going to put a white mulberry in there because the birds won't, you know, won't do that. And then I thought I went, "Hey, dummy, that's a social design consideration. You're, you're actually taking in the social interactions with your neighbors to the design, and then it kind of brings you home to like, how else do I do that? So I think that we need to be thinking about that even when we're just doing our own thing, so to speak. Not because, oh, the government says I can't have a, a purple mulberry, but again, since I don't need them, it's incumbent upon me to think of, well, you know, if they don't like the fact that I own a duck, that's their problem. That's why I'm in an unincorporated area. But when it comes to something that actually will affect them, purple stained poop all over their porch, that is that is my responsibility. Right, right. That's it, and that's the that's the interesting edge I think that a lot of permaculturists are coming to, just just like you did. So we realize that the design of any effective system really has a lot to do with the people who are in it, and that's often not just us and our families. It's our neighbors. It's the rest of our community that gets affected by it. And so it's it's a it's a really cool, fun place to be working in permaculture, is seeing how the the things we've learned from from ecological systems really apply to human ecology just as much. And I think it even translates up to like big things too, because like everybody loves a Lus Plateau, right? Look what China did over there. And they have one of the most right. oppressive militaristic regimes for a government that exists. They can tell people you're doing this and they're going to do it or you're going to go to prison or whatever, or going to work camp or what have you. And even there, if you watch the documentary, they they acknowledged they had to get the buy-in from the people on the land to not graze certain places and things like that for the project to work. They had to understand how it benefited them because even the totalitarianism they had only goes so far in something that remote and that big and that grand of scape 
There had to be a social design there. So if 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 China, with a military willing to turn on itself, is is needs to consider that, then we need to consider that in the most basic things that we're doing. Right. Exactly. You got to get buy-in, and that's that's the social side. That's that's you know how can we how can we use this to benefit other people? How can this become of service to others? You know, and again, how do we become of value or, to our community? So they want this cool stuff to happen. How do you think we balance that with this reality? There's a lot of things that people do that are technically things they're not supposed to do. But because they don't talk about it, they don't throw it in anybody's face, they just kind of go off and do it on their own, plant a bunch of black locusts around the circumference of the property with some Rosa Ragusa on the other end of it. No one comes in there. Everybody leaves them alone. But trying to be a good steward, you start inviting people in, and then you invite the wrong person in, and they see that, and they make a phone call. Department of Making You Sad shows up. So how do we balance, like, getting the, the local community involved with, like, not being interfered with doing basic, simple things that we, we shouldn't have to worry about doing, but we do? Right, and that's that's the big question. I mean, that's that's an issue, and this is where I think this idea of, of legal but illegible comes in, mm. that... That doing things that are a little bit under the radar, um, you know, again, a whole series of strategies. Sometimes you can put in a composting toilet and and it won't be a problem. Other times, maybe you have to go buy the expensive composting toilet just to mm-hmm. be that model for your neighborhood that gets the code changed so that composting toilets are are legal. You know, it's it's that picking your battles piece of. You know, what, what are you, where are you willing to push the envelope a little bit? So again, it's, it's, it's very context oriented, but what are, you know, what are the little victories that we can get? What, how much are we willing to push? Uh, and what do we just say, you know, well, I'm either going to do it totally off the radar so that I don't have to worry about it, or I'm going to do it totally by the book so that I'm, you know, I'm, I'm not going to, going to turn, raise any red flags for what I'm doing. I guess we need both, right? We need the complete, total, off-the-grid anarchist community that says, we don't give a damn, and you're not getting here to look at it anyway. And we need the people that are at the community organizer level, and we need all of those 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 gradients in between. It makes me think of, like, the Free State Project. So, like, the first time I went up there to New Hampshire, I realized I'm sitting here and I've got a, a state house rep on one side of me, And an anarchist with holes so big in his ears, I can see his neck through them on the, on the other side. And they're getting along because their goal is the same. Yeah, yeah, that's it, right? And that's where finding your allies is really important. Like maybe there's some zoning official who hates what you're doing, but maybe there's some zoning official who says, wow, you know, that's actually kind of a neat way to do things. So, so finding the allies um, and creating those alliances, who's going to benefit from your work, who likes what you're doing, You know, who, who will support you? Who will back you up? You know, identify those and, and then give them your energy. You know, what projects are successful? Give those energy and, you know, be willing to cut your losses on the ones that, that aren't successful. Just say, well, we've learned something from that. So putting energy in the places where it's really going to help, learn to identify those and then, and then giving them energy, giving them support. I think at the political level, that's where you really have to be targeted because I think whatever you do about the next presidential election is about equivalent to peeing into the wind on an electric fence. 
Yep, I mean, you might it. hurt yourself, but no one else is going to care. But some people might laugh at you while you do it, right? <laughs> uh, <laughs> exactly. uh, but I do think, even though I'm very anti-political, that there's a place for that political activity. And at a town level, at a you know county level and below, that you can get a lot done. And I also look at it this way, like, Government is this huge force that we, whether we like it or not, whether we, you know, want to acknowledge or not, it's there. We have to accept it. I, I don't want tornadoes, but I have to build my, my home to withstand them because I live in Texas. So it's there. And it makes sense then that you take the local government and make it stand up against the, whatever the next layer above is while you go off right. your thing. That buys right. you time to where you can get it to the point where everybody in the neighborhood goes, well, we, we don't want that to go away now. Right. Yeah, so I think yeah. it'd be interesting. You know, when you hear these things about, you know, they go tear out some person's front yard garden in, in Oklahoma City or whatever. If there were like 800 people standing in the front of that yard going, yeah, I don't think we're letting you do that today. Right. That's it. And it's it's those sorts of things, you know, get get it in the newspaper so that. As, as we said near the beginning of the conversation, so that the, the politicians and the decision makers realize, oh, if we do that, they're, you know, we're not going to get voted for next time. Absolutely. Well, again, I appreciate you being on the air with me today, Toby, taking your time to be here. Uh, I've really enjoyed hanging out with you the couple times I've gotten to. Uh, again, you want to tell people how they can find out more about what you're doing. I know you got a PDC you're teaching this fall or something like that and uh, uh, what have you. Yeah, yeah. My website is patternliteracy.com. Just those two words, patternliteracy.com. And I put the various things that I'm doing uh, up on the website, uh, you know, Facebook page, the usual stuff like that. But um, I'm I've, after writing this book, I didn't do a lot of new articles on my website, but I've got a few ready to go that are going to be posted on my website shortly. And it also has a list of my my events. I'm speaking in various places around the country over the next six months and doing a permaculture design course up in Seattle that meets one weekend a month that starts in May. And then a couple here in the Bay Area where I live that will be starting up in the fall. So easy to keep track of me and I love hearing from folks and, and always love talking about this sort of stuff. So this has been a lot of fun for me too, John. Well, appreciate that. Now for those that want to maybe pre-order your book on, um, on, on Amazon, cause I know it's available for pre-order. Uh, what, what's the name of the new book? Yeah, it's called the Permaculture City, and right, the usual booksellers carry it for for, um, for pre-order, Amazon and Barnes and Noble, and all the other ones, and also Chelsea Green uh, is the publisher, and you can pre-order it from them as well. But it's called the Permaculture City. Awesome. Well, hey, I I'm gonna have you back on uh, about the time that book comes out, so we can talk more about that. And again, thanks for being with us today, and thanks for the work that you've you've done for years now in the permaculture movement. Thank you, Jack, and thanks for all of your work, too. You're doing great stuff, and it's a pleasure and an honor to be here with you. Well, thank you again. And, folks, with that, this has been Jack Spierko today along with Toby Hemingway, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Seeing our food these days, you know it's on our TVs. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer It's like there's nothing I can do It's the price we pay, I guess And we follow all the rules There's a better way to do this Let me show you a better way
revolution.